If you had grown up in Eastern Europe, any time from the late 1930s through the end of the 1980s, you know what oppression looks like. You've experienced terrible rulers, people who use power for their own benefit, from Hitler to Stalin to the next in the line of communist dictators in Russia, in Romania, in Albania, who would oppress the weak, crush the poor, destroy any who might threaten their power, break the enemies. See, this is nothing new. That's what those in power do. They try to consolidate their power. They try and break anyone who might be a threat. Even in ancient civilizations, that's what the Romans did. When they conquered another land, they would take the survivors, parade them through the streets in chains, send them into the Colosseum, and force them to fight to the death. The point was to break your enemy's will, to break those who were weak, those who might have any thought of resistance. We hear this in other places in Scripture. You hear of of kings like Saul and King Herod who would kill their enemies, would throw spears at their servants if they thought they were a threat. There was always someone trying to consolidate their power, to rule with authority and might. Now, you may not have experienced this kind of oppression, this kind of persecution from those in our culture, but... Perhaps you're frustrated, you're angry, you feel like you're stuck in the middle of a traffic jam with no way to go, and you've had enough of our politics, of our politicians who seem to be full of promises but never deliver, who seem to be concerned about everything except for what you think matters, who never seem to care about what matters to you, about your concerns. They're always lifting up other people, and you feel like your rights are being stripped or marginalized. You feel like the government doesn't care much about you. Those in power are overlooking your needs. You feel oppressed. You, maybe you've placed your hopes in our current president-elect that he's going to deliver and shake things up. Or maybe you're looking for the next leader to come who will knock those in charge and power down a few pegs, put them in their place and set things right, who's going to care about what you care about. You're waiting for someone to break your enemies. You're waiting for God to let justice roll, as Martin Luther King Jr. would say. Let justice flow down from the mountains. That's exactly where Israel found themselves. See, they'd been oppressed by nation after nation that had conquered them. They felt the pressure of of new tax laws, of, of being deported and being moved, having no rights. And so they were waiting for God to send that next plan of justice. They were waiting for God to act as he had in the past. They were waiting for the God we read about in Psalm 29, whose voice is, whose voice breaks the cedars, who can shake the mountains. They were waiting for God to come again as he had in the past. They wanted God to break the will of their enemies like he did when they were in Egypt. Through the plagues, they wanted God to come and act with a mighty hand again, maybe to send another judge like Gideon or like Samson to break the enemies by force. They wanted that greater David's son to come and slay their Goliaths. 
They were waiting in hope for God to come as he had in the past. But as we get to the last third of Isaiah's book, God begins to reveal his plans for the future. He talks about a servant to come who will bring justice. The servant will judge the idols of the nations, will prove that they're worthless and empty, that they offer nothing to us. But unexpectedly, this servant is coming to bring healing, to bring salvation to the nations, to the enemies, to the people who have been in darkness. God isn't coming to condemn them, but rather to offer hope. He's coming to be a light to the nations. This son to be born, this servant to come, would offer grace and mercy. This isn't what the people had expected, but we shouldn't be surprised. Because God has always been a God who loves people. See, God and his servant loves everyone. Not just some people, not just those who do the right thing, not just those who who have the right appearance or the right mentality. Everyone, period. It's, It's easy for us to hear those words and to think them, but I think it's hard for us to truly grasp what that means. Because it means that God loves equally the CEO and the prostitute, the school teacher, and the ISIS member. God loves equally the Republican, and the Democrat, and the Independent, and the the non-voter. God loves equally the, the transgender and the homosexual, the factory worker, and the drug addict. Well, it's true that that some of these people will not receive God's love. They'll scorn it. They'll mock it. They'll turn the other way. They'll scoff at this idea of free grace. They'll wonder, why would God, I don't need this from God. They'll turn and rage against it. But some, some will turn back to God. They'll hear this message of grace, this message of peace and love, of righteousness, and they'll repent They will turn back to the God who comes for the people. But make no mistake, God mourns for those who do not receive his love, who do not turn back to him, but instead put their hopes in lifeless idols, in false gods, in those who cannot deliver, who are nothing but vanity and an empty breath. And I know sometimes it's hard to Think of how this applies to us because, you know, we don't worship. We don't see very many carved idols or images or or things presented in front of us. But if you put your faith and your hope, your trust in money, in success, in pleasure, in having a good life, in your reputation, then you're bound to be disappointed because all these things are fleeting. In the end, they will come to nothing. In Isaiah 41, just before today's lesson, God judges, says he's going to send somebody to judge the idols and they'll all be proved empty and worthless. They have nothing to offer you. But to those who are in darkness, to those who feel like slaves in their sin, to those who feel like they have no way out, who feel like society has left them broken and empty with nowhere to turn, on them a light has dawned. God has come. He is sending his messenger to proclaim the gospel, the good news of freedom to each and every one of us, to each and every one of you. 
there is hope. There is peace. There is life that can be found in Christ. God comes to declare that good news to those who have been in darkness, to those nations who have been enemies of his people. This servant comes, but he's unexpected. He is not what you think. Jesus doesn't look like what we would expect or what the people of his day expected. He doesn't act the way we thought he should act. He doesn't care all that much about politics. He's not really too concerned about the boundaries of Israel or whether or not they get their land back. He's not too worried about money aside from how it reveals your priorities. No, this servant, this servant God is sending comes and he's something new, something different. He's different from the rulers we've experienced, from the people who have have come in the past who have only oppressed us. See, this servant doesn't come in force, in violence, in anger and in rage to break the weak. No, he comes soft and quiet. He comes and a broken, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. He comes to lift up the broken, to heal the hurting, to offer peace to those who know only turmoil. He comes to shine light in the darkest parts of your life. He comes as something unexpected. He comes to gather people into his nation, into his kingdom, not by force and by might, not by conquering with military, but with love and compassion. See, this servant comes with quiet and patient gentleness, embodying compassion and righteousness, and the nations are drawn to God through that. They're drawn to Jesus, not because he had a radiant appearance, not because he was some bold political leader, not because he had military might, but because he offered peace, because he came in compassion for the broken and the hurting. He came in meekness and humility, and he offered love. See, that's how Jesus is a light to the nations. He offers hope to the hopeless. He picks up those who are broken and hurting. He heals those who have fallen on hard times. And he calls us as his people, in whom he now dwells in the Holy Spirit, to continue to be that light to the nations by our actions, by our compassion, by our mercy, by our love, by turning the other cheek, by offering forgiveness. As you go through scripture, if you look close in the Old Testament, you'll notice that as the Israelites begin to worship more lustful and violent gods, their lives become more angry, filled with abuse and violence and hatred. The more and more they turn to those kinds of gods, the more they reflect that kind of life. See, in Isaiah 5, at the beginning of Isaiah's call, it says that God went out into the nation and he looked. In Isaiah 5, 7, it says, God looked for righteousness but saw only bloodshed. God looked for justice but heard only cries of anguish. The more and more we try and change people, try and change our culture by violence, by coercion, by anger and force, the more we give in to the angry rhetoric and vitriol that has taken hold in our nation, the further and further we drift from the God we claim to worship. 
As theologian John Oswald put it, God's answer to oppression, to the, oppress- or to the oppressors of the world, is not more oppression, nor is his answer to arrogance more arrogance, but rather in quietness, humility, and simplicity. He will take all the evil into himself and return only grace. Now that's power. See, God displays his power in meekness, in humility, in love, in compassion, in forgiveness, in turning the other cheek. That's where God's power is displayed. I don't know how familiar you are with, with the history of Romania, especially what happened in the 1980s as they experienced a revolution. But in that time, under a communist dictator named, named Nicolae Kosescu, things were terrible. They had an abundance of the food in the country, but they shipped it out to prop up the wealthy while their own people starved. The, the Kosescu family made Marie Antoinette look like somebody you'd want as a leader who told the people to just let them eat cake. That would have been gracious. This dictator, he had the power turned off in most apartments 20 hours a day. Water was only running two hours a day. During the winter in in government-controlled buildings in Europe, the temperature was held at 50, never turned up. There was an air of suspicion and mistrust because secret police would walk through the streets into the employers wearing plain clothes and would write down your names. Neighbors might turn on you for an extra food ration or a little bit extra wood to be able to get through the winter. But the worst was reserved for Christians who wouldn't back down on their claims of the gospel. These people would disappear in the dark of night, never to be heard from again. Or they would be found face down in a ditch or in the river. If you ever get the chance to talk to somebody who's, who lived during that time, I highly encourage you to listen to their story. It's, it's compelling if they're willing to tell it. We see in the midst of this circumstance, after 30 years of oppression, in the worst time in the early 80s, as the oppression got worse and worse, a man named Laszlo Tokes became pastor of a small church in the city. He had taken over for a pastor who had, who had gone with the government, spoken their message, and, and been upon. It was down to about 50, but this man wouldn't give in. He began to proclaim the gospel message. He spoke for the people and against the government. As you can imagine, the, the government didn't like this much, but his numbers grew and grew and grew from 50 to about 1,500 to 3,000 in a matter of a year. But as you can expect, the government who wanted to oppress the people was not too happy. All of a sudden, secret police, armed with automatic weapons, were standing out front of the doors to enter into the congregation. Every Sunday, when they came in for worship, it was a silent protest against the government's rule and authority. Well, the government couldn't have this, and so they sent men to kill Pastor Tokes. But he survived, having a a knife wound to the side of his face. Survived the attack. Then the government changed their plan. They decided, well, that might make him a martyr. We'll we'll exile him to the the far corners of the country. But he got wind of this plan. And so he came in the Sunday before. And he told his people, I want you to be courageous. I want you to be the body of Christ. I want you to show up on Friday when they come, peaceful. Do not result to violence, but be witnesses. 
Do not turn a blind eye to what this government is doing. Do not remain silent. Let your voices be heard. And so Friday rolled around. And the people began to show up around Pastor Tokes' parish house, armed with nothing but hope and candles to light the dark streets. As people passed by, they heard what was going on, and they began to join in this protest to protect the pastor. Finally, the police came, and they beat their way through the crowd. They beat and bloodied Pastor Tokes, carried his body through the crowd, and took him away. With no idea what to do now, the the crowd decided, well, there's no point in protecting this house anymore. But we've come too far to stop. And so they marched to the city square and continued their silent, peaceful protest through the hours of the night until finally the, the riot police came. And in one final, desperate, sickening act of power to try and oppress the weak, to try and silence those who had no rights, they fired automatic weapons into an unarmed crowd of men, women, and children, killing hundreds. But this was that crowd's moment. This was their time. They stood firm. They wouldn't back down. This was the moment of the revolution. This was what the world often considers the beginning of the overthrow of that government. We see, it didn't start that night. It didn't start earlier that week when Pastor Tokes told the people to show up. This revolution started years before as Christians continued to act as the body of Christ even in the face of persecution. They endured. They shared food with one another when one didn't have any. They shared firewood to heat the apartments. They lifted up the broken. They healed the weak. They didn't turn a blind eye when family members went missing. They continued to participate and endure the sufferings of Christ around word and sacrament. They would not be shaken. So you hear these stories. And it's not only in Romania. The same sort of things happened in behind the Berlin Wall that caused the fall. It happened in, in Czechoslovakia called the, the Velvet Revolution. People rose up in peaceful protest, being the body of Christ. See, I don't know if you realize this, but over 90,000 Christians were martyred last year. Martyred for their faith because they endured. They endured when the trials came. See, the world mocks us and, and they say that, that our values can't achieve anything. They don't do anything. They're weak. They're foolish. But this revolution that, that changed nations and a continent didn't come by violence, by force, by anger, or by military might. It came in prayer and humility, through suffering and endurance, through a people gathered together, strengthened in Christ. So the world might consider this foolish and weak, but how do these people endure? How do they do it? Well, it starts because they knew They knew that 366 times in scripture, it says, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not fear, because when it seems like I have experienced defeat, I have crushed the oppressors. I have broken the forces of darkness. They knew of a servant, of a savior, who had the power and yet chose to lay it aside as he entered into our world. 
as he was beaten, betrayed, and crucified, as he endured for you and me and has now been victorious over the grave and offers that victory to us. You see, this, this God gave them hope. When the people say that our values are weak, that we're foolish because we turn the other cheek, because we pray for our enemies, because we heal the broken when there's nothing in return, because we show compassion and mercy, because we offer forgiveness, be reminded that God's reign comes in unexpected ways. His power is displayed in ways that this world thinks are foolish. If you need an example of that, just look to the cross where God himself took on all of the wrath, all of the anger, all of the brokenness, all of the sin into himself and returned nothing but life, mercy, and love to you and to me and to the whole world. See, we as God's people, we follow in his footsteps of living a life of mercy and compassion, of forgiveness. We follow the servant Jesus. We as Christians are called to live a countercultural life that shows compassion, that does pray for enemies, that reaches out to the lost. And we do it because we know that our God has power, that those, thing, those forces of love, of peace, of forgiveness have the power to topple governments, to soften even the most hardened heart, and to heal even the most broken life. It transforms our lives. And so I pray that that peace, that that love, that that power that comes through God's love would transform your hearts and minds to be agents of change as you go out in peace, in forgiveness, in mercy. And that it would guard your hearts and minds in him to life everlasting, no matter what may come in our life. Amen.